0: Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new The National Blast podcast with Kenan Skelly. Join Kenan and guests as they blast you to a place that is certainly not boring, yet still giving you highlights from areas in cyber where key policies and legislation are needed, exist, but aren't enforced, or no one is even talking about it. Knowledge is power. Now more than ever.
1: Hey, 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 everybody. It's Keenan Skelly. Welcome to the latest episode of the National Blast. I have a super exciting guest today, Danielle Jolanski, who knows almost almost as much as I have never learned about nuclear weapons and boom, boom stuff. And we're gonna have so much fun today talking. It's gonna be a blast. (laughs) Danielle, would you please introduce yourself?
2: I'd love to, thanks Keenan. My name is Danielle Blansky. I'm an OT cybersecurity strategist with New Zombie Networks and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. And I love all things cyber physical that hopefully do not
1: go boom. (laughs) Yeah, boom is bad, right? That's what I've heard, Yeah. yeah. Boom is bad. We don't want a boom to happen. So, you know, everybody that listens to the podcast is going to know right off the bat that, you know, critical infrastructure and ICS is one of my babies. Um, I absolutely am super devoted to making sure that change comes eventually to that. And it's a little bit difficult for me having, you know, experienced it over time and kind of since its infancy in the beginning of DHS and not really seeing a whole lot of change. What have you seen? what are what are your opinions about that? do you do you think we've come anywhere? Do you think we've made significant changes or what are we doing?
2: I'm really glad. That was your first question. So a blog I wrote forever ago was, um... Basically, referencing this GAO report and testimony from 2003, and it outlined these top five drivers of understanding that we have critical vulnerabilities across industrial control systems and operational technology. And they were adoption of standardized technologies with well known vulnerabilities, so those vendor systems, connectivity of control systems to other networks, right? We have the enterprise, the DMZ topic, constraints on the use of existing security technologies and practices, insecure remote connections, and widespread availability of technical information about control systems. So the protocols are not as you know, hidden or you know, specific and too difficult to learn uh, as we might've thought. And so I've, I've referenced that a couple of times and I wanna then zoom back and say, the government has a really difficult job in addressing all of those topics. And at the same time, we joke about like 25, 30 years, there are also security practitioners and people who have been working on this my entire life, literally, and I think that they deserve some homage. So, like, there's no negativity towards the people that actually have been working on this. It hasn't just been like a fairy in the in the wing in the wings dust in the wings of a fairy. Um, but the way I like to package this is, it's really interesting that um, everyone's waiting for a worst case, worst scenario. We hear the cyber 911 analogy, um, which makes every actual incident a red herring, and all those red herrings then become a distraction because there's no consensus built on red herrings. Um, but at the same time, if you look really high level in the great power competition, again, I do not envy the government of public service is something I hope is in my future. Um, but they have a lot of work to do on definitions and consensus building. And you just don't do that with red herrings. And you also don't do that by falling back on values, which I think is a government principle, which is great, but it doesn't breed a lot of action. Um, and then the other background thing I like to point out in this, this scope of like large scale is that there's, uh, you know, a cost benefit analysis to all of this, and the private sector continues to bear the brunt of adversarial cyber incidents, while the military wing of the United States government continues to promote this strategy of persistent engagement. And so at some point, the cost for the, the private sector will potentially outweigh the benefit of having, you know, a very open policy But in the meantime, we don't know what escalation looks like. We don't know what the rungs of the ladder are, yada, yada, yada. And at the end of the day, we still talk about it at that high level, but there are asset owners and critical infrastructure people every day who don't see themselves as part of a cyber warfare ongoing great power competition. They see themselves as the owner and operator of a critical service in society, right? So that's kind of how I like to like walk it back. Amen.
1: That's all I can say. Amen. Yes, preach. Yes, 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 and yes. You know, um, I've made this example before, and we were talking about this earlier about you know, some of the first programs that were out there that were really meant to help critical infrastructure owners and operators understand their security you know, posture and what they needed to do. But all of the grant funding and all of the pieces and parts that were provided by the government were actually only able to give support to police departments and fire departments you know who would respond to a nuclear incident. Um, but that that never helped any of the the people at nuclear power plants. It never helped any of the chemical plants. It certainly didn't help the the California water system. You know, from Canada to Mexico and all of the intricate systems of systems that are affected by that. And here we are, like you said, so many years later. And I, I totally agree. You know, there have been a lot of people working really hard on this for a long time, um, and that's impressive. In in my opinion, I really I fall back to Congress on this because it's not something that. Um, you know, it's not something that is new. It's not something that we should just now be talking about. It's something that really should have had legs to that policy and legs to that concept years ago. What do you think about that?
2: So in terms of like, how can Congress do anything better? Like like they have so much free time (laughs) to to reevaluate things. I think that we got really caught up on definitions and Um, I also kind of preach that like, just because something's called critical infrastructure, like I think we just kind of talked about this before we were recording, which is like, it's kind of lost its meaning because now everything is critical. So I don't understand what's the most important. And I'm lumped in with these other industries. And if I'm in the industry, they're very different, right? Just because they have similar vendors and similar protocols for their communications doesn't mean that they operate similarly, have the same pain points, have the same um, like funding models, CapEx, OpEx discussions, et cetera. And so I'm actually the proponent in the room that's like, I wrote something about satellite infrastructure and how that's not considered critical infrastructure, but it touches all the, I think they're NSFs, right? That matter. Um, And then a recent one that I've been like wilding out on is prisons because they're not considered critical infrastructure, but they have a lot of impact in the markets. Um, And so to actually answer your question, this isn't a fully baked idea, but I've been thinking about a way to address this problem by looking at within critical infrastructure sectors, however you define them or redefine them, um, which ones are data rich information poor environments? because those are the ones that are looking at digitization, efficiency, new technologies, cloud migration and adoption, yada, yada. Of those, what's the security posture and maturity? And then how do you control for uncertainty in that environment, right? Yep. That's kind of how I would start to do it. It's not a really great direct answer. It doesn't focus on authorities or you know how do you get money to do those things, but um, it moves away from just definitions all the time, right? And how do we regroup on definitions and provide new authority to a new group to, to look at those definitions and, and work on that stuff, so.
1: Absolutely, and I think, you know, DHS has definitely had the authority for a long time to be racking and stacking critical infrastructure, and there have been various methodologies through the year, the years, but... What, something that I would really like to see, um, just knowing a lot about the grant programs and, and how that kind of works, is if we can get out of this idea that to fund a program it has to be for state and local responders um, and actually get to the point where we're helping the, the owner operators. This is something that's really bothered me, even when it comes to like training and things of that nature. It's just difficult for the government to provide that. But if, the, if it's so difficult for the government to create legislation or to develop um, you know, grant funding that will address that, then maybe there needs to be a different type of agency that sits in between critical infrastructure and U.S. government and helps figure out how we do funding and how we do teaching and how we do uh, understanding you know, their critical manufacturing processes and all of that. What do you think about that?
2: My answer to that is one that is also not a unique idea that people have said this, and that's the professionalization of cybersecurity. So again, I'll zoom back out. I used to give this public talk about the energy industry and what I thought about cybersecurity within that. And I used to say that the energy industry is experiencing a revolution in the sense that nothing will ever be done the same. They're never going to go back after the changes that are happening that we see across the board. But the security layers of legacy systems, it's actually a renaissance And those are two very different approaches. They require different skill sets. They require different information sharing, information gathering, all of that. And what's interesting is because there's a lot of regulation in energy, you see a lot of top-down, okay, well, we have compliance structures, so we have to meet those. And then people will argue on whether or not security is actually a function of that compliance mechanism, yada, yada. But there's always going to be a camp of first movers that follow that because there's a top-down regulation for it and there's always going to be a camp that waits and follows and won't sink any costs. And I think that's the underlying problem. That's what you have to address is how do you get that camp if it's 60, 40, 80, 20 to be early adopters of something that isn't exactly concrete, but requires sunk costs, right? It's also a mirror image of the ROI problem in cybersecurity writ large, um, but I'll I, give a
1: shout out. If you talk about ahead. like the financial sector is traditionally the ones who jump in and try new technologies and test things out because yeah. They have these regulations that are absolutely you know, critical that they have to follow and so much PII that they deal with and and and, um, and but it's very similar, you're absolutely right in, in the critical infrastructure space as well. There have always been industries that were ahead of the game and it changes with time, you know, in the beginning, I would say like 50, 60 years ago, I think nuclear power plants were probably the, the height of technology and security right at that time for what was considered that, but we have to also get into this mindset that that changes over time and it needs to continuously change. It can't be static for so long that it's irrelevant, which is kind of where we're at.
2: I like that you said the financial piece, because um, the interesting part about financial being a real leader in cybersecurity is that if it, when it comes down to like your banking information and your PII, they, they assume liability, right? If, you're, if your identity is stolen, you're typically going to get refunded if you can prove it. it. happened to me. Somebody spent $700 at AutoZone. Wells Fargo was like, ma'am, we know you don't shop at AutoZone. <laughs> I was like, you're 100% correct. Thanks for your call. Uh, and so they assume that liability, which is much more difficult to do across other sectors of critical infrastructure, yeah. right? So that's a big thing. What's, another interesting point, though, that I just thought of for the energy space working back is that. Early on in the financial, we saw that mid-sized banks were a huge target because giant enterprises have good security teams, and uh, you know your mom and pop local banks, you can walk in and they know your face. So the security aspect of you know leveraging an adversarial technique or a kill chain was going to happen at the mid size And then we saw it at like universities, trying to get into government conduits, and uh, across critical infrastructure, private sector. It's, there's a lot of ownership by smaller enterprises, right? Smaller, mid-sized businesses. And that's another avenue for the government, which c- tends to get ignored because bigger companies have larger lobbying firms, et cetera. Um, but that's something we have to take into consideration because if we talk about supply chain as a, as a single point of failure, and then in 10 years, we are only left with the, the big companies across these verticals, then we're actually in a worst case scenario than if we had you know sunk some costs into beefing up the security at that mid-level that becomes a conduit for... Adversarial, you know. One hundred reconnaissance, right now, but you know. Yeah,
1: your- I totally agree. And you know, uh, I, I was just talking to somebody else about this the other day about you know big companies and uh, living in DC, you see everybody coming to testify before Congress about what they're doing for privacy and what they're doing for security. And and this year, I'm really hoping and I'm really, you know, pushing for incident reporting and breach notification legislation that actually makes sense to come out. And of course, it's going to go for critical infrastructure first. Um, And somebody asked me, you know, why, why is it so hard for Congress to make these decisions? And one of the things I think it is, is uh, one, the lobbying. Obviously, if you're big firms, you have you have uh, lots of lobbyists on the Hill all the time trying to talk about why this is important, why it's not important. But it's also uh, that focus on the larger folks in the room. So if we're talking about privacy you know um, and, and how privacy is dealt with every day, like on an everyday level at Facebook, it doesn't matter how many times you have Mark Zuckerberg out here to talk about it he's not talking about the real problems that they have or the real things that they're trying to do or the not just not trying to do, right? He's talking way up here about this kind of stuff. We need to get out of that habit when we're talking to Congress and legislators, they need to be better educated about everything because we no longer live in a time where you can just call a friend of a friend who did cyber once and say, Hey, I need some uh, expert advice on this bill that we're writing. Yeah, it doesn't right. work like that
2: anymore. Yeah, No phone a friend anymore. No uh, a friend. Yeah. So I won't plug anything on Mizomi product wise, but our culture is customer first, customer first, customer first. And I think Congress's culture needs to be operators first, operators first, operators first when it comes to critical infrastructure. I am in no way an expert on any one vertical, but what I would remind people going into, like, a, if, if this were a strategy session in Congress, Everyone talks about the cyber 911. Everyone in cyber hates, hates the analogy. And every time I hear it, I say, whatever. If, but, but don't focus on the impact. So actually, when I was in school, I, my focus was on international security, Middle East, Arabic geopolitics. And um, the emphasis was that like if you actually studied terrorism, that data point was pulled out right because it skewed the data. It was too far outside of the norm in terms of the like, casualties in the bank. So if you're focused on that as the bang portion of cyber, you're missing the mark. And what I would bring them back to is that the box cutter is going to be different in every single industry, in every single incident. And uh, we can't focus on the bang without analyzing the box cutter. So that's how I bring people back (laughs) from the brink, right? Like off the edge. And I say, and sometimes the box cutter is, is actually not that hard of a problem, right? It becomes something you can control for. And then we talk about controls and we talk about planning and maturity and process and, and funding and all of those business decisions. And then at the end of the day, information sharing is necessary and we need to do a better job of it. But if you think about it, if you were in crisis today, your first decision, is not going to be like, how can I inform somebody else about this problem? It's how do I put my left foot in front of my right foot in front of my left foot to eventually be able to go to sleep tonight without like pulling every hair off my head. Um, <laughs> so it's that like reality check right is is what it comes down to um and that that's true for like anything in in the world and in in politics is that a lot of the times we um hear from those big leaders and they talk so high level we forget about reality we forget about the day-to-day and the human aspect of a lot of these things so
1: absolutely left of boom is everything forget about the boom i mean don't forget about the boom but
2: right Shelter. Well and the same thing happens at like the the big international tables and the GGEs, and like I'll share. I was I was thinking about whether or not I should share the story with you, but I was talking to somebody at the that worked at the GGEs my whole like since before I was born, and I'd ask them like what keeps you engaged in this conversation and like getting the buy in when there's really not been a lot of progress, and so this takes the focus off of Congress and puts it on you know a more international platform and. They gave me like an okay answer, but for me, it was just like bewildering that that it's been going on without much understanding or buy-in across the globe. And I think a big portion of that was not accounting for the misinformation ecosystem, right? 20 years ago, we didn't know what that would look like. But like the talent manual, great effort. But do we know whether or not civilian infrastructure is off limits? No. Do we know if we could survive a second strike? Depends,
1: right? Don't even get me started. New national <laughs> cybersecurity norms because we'll be here all yeah. day long. And it wasn't
2: to like downgrade that work, but it was just like, what? What keeps you going for twenty-five plus years? You know, at that point, when I asked the question, so, um, but you know, somebody might ask me that in twenty more years and ask, you know, what kept what kept you here for forty years? And I'll be like, you know, the coffee.
1: It's the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think. Oh wait, did you freeze? I think I've heard. Oh, are you there? Here. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now you're there. Sorry. You froze for me. You were like, um, <laughs> I think it's really, really interesting. Uh, you know, when we start talking about what is going to happen internationally, when we talk about critical infrastructure, um, if we take Every you know, geopolitical argument or tiff that kind of happens throughout the world, we're seeing an escalation in the use of critical infrastructure as a target, specifically with cybersecurity. In fact, um, as of this recording, uh, there, the tensions between Russia and Ukraine, obviously, and the UN are extremely heightened, extremely heightened. And um, from everyone's perception, it, it, it's something that could... That could go at any time now. So everybody's, you know, kind of standing by and putting their shields up and you know making sure that they're getting ready for what could happen or some things that have already happened. But at, at, at this point, I see this particular thing happening and I have to go back to other times in, in history and other times with you know other types of warfare, like chemical or nuclear, or biological, and wonder how it is that we've spent this long like waiting for these cyber norms to come about and to actually put them into policy action. You know, for every, and I I know you know this, for every nuclear, you know, um, thing that happens, every escalation that happens, there is a proportional response to that and that it's accepted widely, globally. What are the proportional responses that are accepted for attacking critical infrastructure? I don't know.
2: Yeah. No, big question, but I'm glad you asked it. Uh, What I think is really interesting, and I brought this up with the person who wrote the Persistent Engagement Doctrine, was that in the past, if your military doctrine was really bold and your positioning and your practice were not so bold, that was messaging versus signaling. And in cyber for a long time, we had all this messaging (laughs) that was pretty succinct, right? Some things were pretty succinct, the signaling was vastly different. So yeah. you had certain countries, I won't call them out, but you had certain countries who realized that maybe they were heavily dependent on a seaport that then beefed up their doctrine to the extent that it looked really tight, but it was lip service, right? The practice and the actual you know, signaling or reconnaissance or where we are in cybersecurity, that's gotten better. But for years and years and years, there was a giant disconnect. And what I think is really important, and I'm glad we keep coming back to WMDs, is a couple of years ago, I was doing a tabletop exercise with NDU um, and a friend of mine that was there previously. And what we looked at, we looked back at the definition of a weapon of mass destruction. And when you categorize things, which gets back to the definitions of these sectors and what becomes critical and what isn't. And when Kim Jong-un poisoned a member of his family, it wasn't considered a WMD attack because of the amount that was used in that scenario. And what I came back to was we keep focusing on this like massive next step attack that makes everything else a red herring but the two things that are part of a definition of weapons of mass destruction that we've overlooked when it comes to cyber or like thinking about these big picture issues are the ability to overwhelm local resources is a definition part of a definition and the ability to cause public panic and hysteria which makes me think of like the food industry and like things that we don't pay that much attention to so
1: or if you were living in the east coast you know during the colonial pipeline attack and you couldn't get gas that makes people freak out so but It still hasn't been the one, right? People are just like, well, what's next? What's worse? And it's like,
2: how does that help? How does that mentality help? Yeah, Right. absolutely. Not that it wasn't bad, sorry. RIP to the people with, with, you know, trying to bag their gas, but.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we've we've survived. Um, You know, that's, that's really interesting too. When you talk about critical infrastructure to the public, it's also something that's often hard to define. You know, you can say specifically, this is what critical infrastructure does. And you can, you know, have all the doom and gloom conversations about if we lose this, then we lose this and systems, you know, credibility and blah, 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 blah. But getting everyday Americans to care about that, really, really care enough to vote for people who care about it, right? Enough to vote for propositions and local legislations that are taking care of their local critical infrastructure. That's a hard thing to do. And so, you know, one of my uh, my criticisms of, of Congress, when I say that, you know, they, they haven't really made any movements on this, to give them an equal amount of credit, they are expected to be experts in everything, in absolutely everything. And at the end of the day, they have constituents that they have to report to, right? They have people that they were voted for by who are expecting certain agenda items to happen. So... How do you how do you beef up and, and maximize your time so that you can talk about every single one of these topics and get buy in from your voters? That's a I mean it's a hard there's no answer to that and that's why we see yeah. these kind of stalled out you know efforts that that start but never really get finished because there's so many things on their plate and I totally get that.
2: That's kind of why my brain started to turn on the prisons example because it would impact constituencies it would impact society but it also impacts markets if. They rely on some of the production, like license plates are made at some prisons and things like that. And it's overlooked, I think, but at the same time there are operational technology in those environments. So stay tuned for whatever I end up you know, writing at some point on that. But um, what I think it comes down to, and this might not be what like vendors wanna hear is product security. Oh, right. What can you legislate? And so I have talked to people all the times that like, you know, if there's no customer demand for security by design and there's no customer demand for even enabling security by default, then it'll never happen. And I think that's where constituencies need to care more because they'll vote for really shiny objects in their communities. And so will Congress, right? They're gonna want something within their jurisdiction that is beneficial, it's lucrative, et cetera. But what technologies are going in, what vendors are going in and do they compete on security? What is their, um, a good measure when I was an analyst that I used to tell people was like, if they disclose vulnerabilities or have a vulnerability disclosure page on their website, that's a positive, not a negative. If they have nothing uh, like that, that's a red flag. And so that's a, a mindset shift that I think Congress could leverage, right? More reporting, more open discussion about product security and vendors competing on security, which we always make the analogy to like seatbelts and um, security and automotive and things like that. but there's there's always a good analogy for something, but I think that it's, it comes down to products because you can't legislate people.
1: I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think that I think legislation has its uses for helping the people get to where they need to be. But I, I agree that it definitely needs to be something that companies are more responsible for. That said, I can't imagine, if I think of the top five companies off the top of my head who are massive companies, I can't imagine any single one of them focusing time and effort on that, even if they were regulated to do so. And the reason for that is as soon as you put out regulation and, and we sh- we see this all over the globe right now, for example, the EU has this AI legislation and it's, it's meant for obviously all of the, the partner states and nations to have kind of a, a baseline understanding of what is okay and what's not okay in AI. And they only call out one thing that they say you cannot do this, and it's biometrics. And they say you cannot, you know, be testing and creating products with AI and using biometric data at the same time. But as as somebody who's experienced a weapons of mass destruction world, right? When you know that something has specific bad uses or poor security, um, you know, opportunities, you have to call that out up front. Like you can't say. As soon as we created the the H-Bomb, as soon as nuclear, you know, fission went chaotic and and Einstein realized that it could be a bomb, he said, this could be a bomb <laughs> and we need to do something about it. Now, unfortunately, in that case, we were at war and it ended up being, you know, 40 years of, of nuclear warfare. But we we have to learn from our, our mistakes in chemical, in biological, in nuclear. Cyber is no different. We, we know what the issues are. We have to call them out as wrong. Yeah, biometrics is an interesting
2: one because there's all these new security applications for biometrics, including like identity and access management, physical security, etc. The easy answer for people in the private sector is that, and I've kind of touted this everywhere I've ever spoken, which is security in our world gets to follow a business case. So the security teams at private sector companies, they are a resource for a use case, a business decision, et cetera. And that's a fallback for us. So, you know, you tell me why it's important and I'll tell you how we secure it. I'll tell you how much it'll cost, et cetera, et cetera. And that equals business continuity which equals profit, profitability. And the government doesn't get to do that. And so they have this big kind of gaping problem of like, there's no real good way to build consensus which goes back to the red herring problem. You know, the, like we fault values or <laughs> yeah. like which one do we pick because we don't like business continuity at the government level is not at fault like it's not in question when it comes to cyber security so that's kind of a big a big deal and then there's also this disconnect which i joke with people like had i done a, a phd i wanted to do it around org theory of hackers <laughs> <laughs> because we don't get to see the handbooks but people joke, oh, here we go. People joke about Stuxnet and how there was like a lawyer over somebody's shoulder saying, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, right? Um, But what happened in my view, totally my opinion, with Stuxnet and actual owners and operators was cognitive dissonance. If I'm operating a utility and I'm not enriching plutonium or uranium for weapons-grade fissile materials to build, then I'm not the target audience, right? And so I think that actually it did kind of a disservice in that sense of saying like, well, I can easily and psychologically distance myself from that. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a problem. So what do you fall back on? And then, you know, a, a shout out to uh, Tim Maurer's book, Cyber Mercenaries. That's what I was going to go with. It's like, how do we define the org theory around this when we can't actually look at their handbooks and what their lawyers are saying? Yes and no, we know it's happening, right? We know somebody is guiding that process, but how do we look at it and then look at the United States Because it's different because we have less of, well, the government has less of an actual direction. To give directives to the private sector right and that's a huge gap and it's a security gap and it's not what i'm saying where the government should have more of a directive role in the private sector but it's one that is glaring when it comes to doing anything in terms of governance to solve the problems and learn lessons like you were just saying so
1: yeah i mean we still don't even have privacy legislation so i mean <laughs> you know it's it's kind of um and again California does right <laughs> yeah california does woo wait i don't
2: live there okay uh, me anymore <laughs> yeah, yeah. Me there anymore
1: yeah and you know the uh, the eu and um europe are going for gdpr round 2 now and so people are taking it seriously people are taking that kind of thing seriously but here in the us and i think it's the very nature of being american right it's the we don't want you in our stuff we don't want you to regulate us we don't want you to tell us, we can't do anything, we we can't practice a certain faith, we can't do whatever, we can't sell whatever we want to whomever wants to buy it. You know, it's this very American kind of mentality. And I think a lot of times that gets in the way of how people actually understand cybersecurity, privacy, all of these things. which goes back to education, which I'm not going to get on that pedestal right now.
2: <laughs> well, and it goes back to the values. So then what you're talking about is innovation and pace. We don't want to stifle innovation because we know that at the end of the day, the private sector is just grueling all day long to get things done. That's what their focus is. And then pace where governance is always delayed with the pace of technology and innovation. It's something we don't want to stifle. But what happens is that when we start with things that we want to get done and achieve from a governance standpoint, we start with verbs and we boil it down to nouns every time. Every time verbs become nouns. And I'm always in my private sector gig saying, great, love that noun. Let's give it a verb. Right. Absolutely. And it's hard. It's not easy, but that's what it comes down to. Sorry, government.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We love you.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I always tell people like, as soon as I'm blunt about something in the government, I'm like, my dad was a prison counselor and my mom was a social worker. I love public service. I'd love to do it someday. Like, you know, your jobs are not easy. I can't.
1: I know. I I say that credit, especially a lot, like with this podcast, for example, I talk about some very specific things that need to happen and that, you know, I've experienced and other people have experienced, but I can only say that because (laughs) I've had such a close relationship with the government. I've worked for the government. I've worked for the DOD. I've spent a lot of time in this place looking at these things. And those are these are the people, people like you, uh, you know, people like many of my guests who are experiencing this and working on this and trying to make change every day. Those are the people that you have to be talking to when we're talking about making uh, real legislative change and government change, especially in critical infrastructure. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate that it's just
2: there's just a lot of recommendations out there that are difficult to implement. Um the other thing interesting. I listened to your cyber insurance one, and that's a tiny bit of my background and um, what I think is cool about the moment that we're experiencing now, like I've had OEMs call me up at my old job and say, like, is this new? Is this something they're just looking at? And I was like, whoa, <laughs> nope. Uh, <laughs> it's been a couple of years. Let me bring you up speed. And so I said, um, in my experience, again, my own opinion, working in this field, um, for a long time, the insurance groups were really focused on accumulation risk. Yeah. and that is just the insurance vocalization of the cyber 911 problem we're focused on the worst case scenario and everyone hasn't been it so we haven't focused on like doing due diligence on the data gap and, and analyzing this and so it's all accumulation risk and how does it all boil up and how do we um, and, sorry Charles Schwab, but I always use their their analogies that like an adversary is going to take out a portfolio of like Charles Schwab companies that then, maybe rolls out into a real crisis rather than like attacking the grid. That's my own view. But like from an insurance standpoint, that's what I would look at rather than like an entire industry single point of failure type takedown. Um, And so now they're moving away from that. They're moving away from the big roll up and focusing on the tactical day to day. Um, You know, now it used to be the case that people would shop around for the shortest application for cyber coverage. And now that it's not profitable, 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 they've realized, you know, maybe I should fill out this 12 page, um, application so that this company, this insurance provider actually knows on an annual basis, what I've got and what my stake is in this topic so that I can actually have coverage, right? And it's it's considered a better model and a better mechanism. And that's only happened in the last like five, five or less years. Right. So I'm so happy that that industry has moved away from the accumulation risk, but they also can't be a de facto regulator, but their timelines are typically one year. So they have more wiggle room in terms of what they recommend or what they require but they're also a free and open marketplace. So you have to be careful about giving them that role as regulator. But it is interesting that their timelines are shorter than most government legislation, right? Annual.
1: And, you know, from that episode, one of the things we talked about, too, was the self checklist. And that, that's that been like... a. Um... It's been a staple in government, kind of initially regulated agencies or like forever. Like when uh, chemical security st- stood up at uh, DHS, it was a self checklist, you know, tell us, do you have any materials that may be used to create chemical weapons and blah, blah, blah. And of course, they're all going to say, no. They don't know. <laughs> like they know some of that. They know, okay, well, this could probably be used and it's very, very dangerous. But you're asking them questions about what terrorists do with their stuff. And being like, okay, how's this going to work? And cyber insurance is a very unique um side of that, I think, when you're asking insurers who are typically insuring things like a home that, you know, has very specific, okay, well, was there water damage or was there this? And and there is enough data, you know, collected over hundreds of years that can be used for that versus cyber, which is literally different every day. How do you rack and stack that when it, it's almost impossible to define in any moment of time.
2: Yeah. And it also just becomes like a new best practice. It becomes a requirement and then that changes. And then there's like a new perception of best practice that we tout around. Like I always tell people, like when I started, it was uh cyber risk is business risk and everyone touted that. And it was great. And then it was defense in depth. And everyone was like, woo. And then it became zero trust. And so there always will be this like overlaying principle, which zero trust is incredible. It's a great thing to do, but again, it's,
1: Uh, it's not like we haven't talked about it before
2: (laughs) (laughs) but but it's 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 essentially a noun um and how do you build trust right trust is a human like social construct right um but again i don't envy the insurance companies either because they they have at least they admit to not having the right data instead of trying to uh square peg round hole data that doesn't work because we've seen that in ai right where the data (laughs) The integrity of data is actually being used in use cases that we are not comfortable with. And I will give the cyber insurance market total kudos for not doing that and recognizing, wait a minute, you know, I actually used to look at uh, research from my nuclear background on like what would happen if a bomb took out New York city, what would the impact be on the financial market? And when I was working in insurance, they asked me like, could you map that to cyber? And the answer was no, the data is different, right? And insurance was not like, we'll give it to us anyway. Right. It was, oh, it's different. We should, we should drop that. Right. So that's been, you know, again, kudos to them. Um, but I think it's all about validation, right? So zero trust is all about validation and cyber insurance can pick pick that up and run with it because now when you fill out a questionnaire, there needs to be a way to validate that. Do you have multi-factor authentication? Can you validate it? What can you provide us that is validating the controls that you say that you have in place that then in turn, don't create a loophole for me as an insurer when you have a claim. The only issue is there's this, I forget what it's called, but a company um, say there's a a really big um, like SolarWinds type incident in one year. And I go to apply for a renewal of my policy for the next year. And I'm not sure whether or not something from this incident in this year will actually reveal itself in the next year. I have to disclose that. And that's, I think where it's gonna get really tricky because the more you try to verify things like that, that there are unknowns and cybersecurity, it's gonna be, it's gonna be more difficult, Um, but.
1: And companies have been hacked like for the last four years in a row. (laughs) You know, uh, are we gonna give them insurance? I I wouldn't, Um, you know, obviously they have some work to do, but it's a good question.
2: That's interesting too, because you're bringing up reputation. And we talk about reputation all the time in cybersecurity. And I've always pushed back on it because there's no evidence that says reputation actually matters.
1: Oh no I'm not I'm actually thinking of a very specific case where it's technological and mm-hmm. I know the company and they it's been very public. I they have that. a hack every year They've had a hack like every single year and it's because yeah. they haven't made any changes from the previous hacks and it's not it's not a bad reputation it's actually the the technologies that they have in place and the way that they're working together but they haven't changed them. So, so I would assume they're unendurable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would hope so. And, but that gets back to the whole question, you know, does the data support that? Um, I don't know.
2: Yeah. And underlying all of that, the reason I said, maybe that's a reputation conversation is that there are a lot of assumptions that people bring from other fields of study and we need that approach, right? It has to be multidisciplinary. That's why I've been successful. I have like a tiny background in all these different things that kind of comes together wholesale as a cool narrative and it's, it's great. And I'm a people person and I just keep, keep learning. I keep learning more and more and more. Um, I have the practical IOT hacking book on the shelf. So, you know, the next thing is is always there, but there's so many assumptions that we bring along with us. And sometimes we tout those assumptions without really gut checking them. And the reputation piece is just one of those, but um, interns has actually got, done a good job of trying to shift and, you know, not just push on with bad data or things like that. So, but yeah. I didn't mean to absorb that topic. It's one you've already no, done. No, not
1: at all. That's you know, the whole thing so. of this is that we talk about whatever. We can just talk about, you know, nuclear fission for a while. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Or tabletop
2: exercise. Like I mentioned, um, that's like one of my favorite things to do and and to walk away from, like, I always say not the New York times headline, but the like less sexy, more likely kind of attacks. And and, um, we talk about like the panic thing. I've always kind of geeked out about like food, right? Like you could cause a lot of panic by the way that we process food and that's an OT conversation. And there's just so many other avenues I, I get excited about. And there's just so much work to be done. And like you said about like phoning a friend in Congress, it's like, you don't have, you don't have that many friends that are going to be able to talk about every single one of these. So how do you make something more conducive to getting down to the verbs? I guess that if I had a podcast, it'd, it'd be called that right. <laughs> get <down to laughs> get the into ver- the
1: verbs. <laughs> that would be great. That would actually be, yes, <laughs> you should do that. <laughs> oh. I think that, you know, when we talk, you talk about food, and the first thing that I think of is every time there's a storm, you know, I'm from the Midwest, and every time too. there's going be snow, of course, you know, the bread sells out and the eggs sell out. And that's just like years of beaten in kind of culture that something's coming, you prepare for it. So when, you know, COVID started and everybody started doing that and everybody else was shocked that, you know, everybody was getting toilet paper and they were getting paper towels and all the butter and the bread and the eggs. And I was like, well, of course they are, something's coming and they don't know what it is. And so like just comfort panic mode. And I mean that by comfort panic mode is. What do I absolutely need to survive if I have to be in my house for longer than two days, right? (laughs) And it's going to be those basic things. It's going to be the butter. It's going to be the eggs. It's going to be the toilet paper. And that's how people think. So I think using that kind of dynamic in the way that we talk to people about critical infrastructure and, and cybersecurity is important. It has to be understood that that's one of those things that is part of that process. It should be one of your comfort grabs right it should be one of your Mm -hmm. oh my god i forgot to change my password on this thing and there's people hacking our country right now yeah i think that important
2: that's uh an s-bomb plug it has to be um the (laughs) risk is that you're then just creating a bunch of data and you don't know how to use it and you know i could do that as an analyst right in my old job But if you can't actually have any actionable insights that come out of that data, then it's just a bunch of data. So that's the challenge that SBOMs are overcoming, but they provide an inventory. And so what you're talking about is like, when the pandemic hit, what did we want? An inventory of what we needed as humans, but also an inventory of what was in this virus. And in OT, we talk about asset inventory being a starting point for understanding your environments. Um, and in the food case, IBM food trust, I think is what the, the program is called at IBM. They're doing this and it comes down to provenance. So even if you don't have an inventory, right? Like I, I don't have a chem lab in my house. That's going to be able to like, look at my lettuce and, and tell me if there's salmonella or whatever. I don't have a testing kit for that, but there's a provenance to where that came from. And if I have technology to understand that provenance, then I might not panic. Absolutely. So that's what we need in cybersecurity is there's a provenance issue, which S-bonds are working to, to facilitate, but there's other ways to get a, get around that. And it also goes back to product security because that's part of provenance. It also goes back to supply chain security because it's a provenance issue. Uh, it goes back to misinformation, right? Where does information come oh, from? Yeah. It's, a, it's a provenance issue, but you can gain a lot of data and then get it just becomes very noisy and you don't know how to do anything about it. So then you fall back on your values and you forget your verbs.
1: <laughs> and it's this endless cycle of verblessness. <laughs>
2: yeah, and like I said, there have been people working on it for my whole life and, and they're great people in, in all these different fields. And so, um, that consensus piece is difficult, and like you said, people in Congress have to be experts on everything, and it's impossible. And then also, you know, travel home and and deal with crises and um, be reacting to things all the time, and, and trying to prepare for other things all the time, and getting your staff up to speed, and you know, dealing with loopholes and, yeah. you know, viruses, pandemics, and and everything else. So I don't envy I don't envy anyone on the Hill actually, um, yeah. but
1: okay. I feel like we'd literally talked about the whole world. I don't even know how long it is. <laughs> <Woo! laughs>
2: Danielle Jablanski, world consultant. <laughs> um, I like that you said Europe, you know, is obviously doing better on the privacy side, they do a lot of work quick, more quickly than the United States does in terms of governance around these things. And um, we forget that in my, in my industry and in the field. And so it's, I, you know, something I am continually talking about uh, with like our America's teams. I'm like, hey, who's the number one, Company you're thinking about globally. What's the number one, you know, process that is missing on a global like, zoom out, zoom out, zoom out. um And you know, we forget to do that in America a lot of the time. On, oh yeah, many friends. <laughs>
1: Especially, um, I found which is which is really unfortunate because the rest of the world. I mean, there's there's an exercise I go to every couple of years, and sometimes it's London, sometimes it's in DC, but it's all about energy, all the different kinds of energy. And literally people from the entire globe get together and talk about what's working for them, what's not working in different sectors. And there's lots of breakouts and it's just amazing. And we look at it kind of like, oh, well, you know, that's just what Europe is doing.
2: (laughs) No, energy is like the coolest topic. And kind of like when I was in nuclear people, I went to like all these talks about like the trajectory of weapons and the nozzle on the missile and all these different things. And it was so cool and things that were over my head and yellow cake. And it was, I still picked the cyber out of that. But then when I went to energy, even at Guidehouse, my former employer, like people were experts on virtual power plants and microgrids and, you know, DER and all these things that I'm tendentially interested in from a security perspective. But there are just all these experts all over the world that know so much and they're doing it. And um, I did a research project there on IoT for farming and agriculture. Oh, wow, just that- learning yeah like the connectivity issues they're not even to security yet they're to getting broadband and internet in rural places that's with ruggedized hardware um but there's all this projection of what those different industries need when it comes to technology which is not a security topic but like people are like well they need robot strawberry pickers at farms and i talked to you know end users and they're like no we could just like a smart rat trap would be cool <laughs> and <laughs> So now I use that, right? Like there's some mundane use cases out there that we just like jump from that to thinking like we can prescribe the technology or even the security that these end users and operators need in these different sectors. And it's like, maybe just ask them.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know. I'm no expert. (laughs) Where's the technology? The technology is coming, but they don't necessarily need all of it, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah. 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 We have the innovators, but then you also have the practitioners and that's, um, you know, there's a use case for both, but you know, don't project what you think an entire industry might need without consulting them. I think would be a good uh, operating status. <laughs> That's
1: cool. Yeah. All right, so for 2022, what is the biggest thing that you think Congress can do that is going to help IOT and ICS move forward?
2: Um, so it's going to be kind of a fluffy answer, but it goes back to when I was talking about data rich information, poor industries, um, they have to control for uncertainty and it's really, 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 really difficult to do that. Um, but back to the end of our conversation, like if we can help owners and operators deal with uncertainty as they're trying to do that revolution digitization, whatever it is, but also not forget the legacy systems part, but it has to be that on the ground reality check you know, the actual asset owners. Um, and I've seen some pushback where like vulnerabilities that we know of in cyberspace might be just closed from a federal wing and owners and operators aren't privy to the information or don't get a seat at the table. Um, and then that just breeds like this distrust and you have all these divides that we used to talk about. I think all that stuff is BS. It's in the wind. Like there's, there's only a divide if you want to be divided at this point. Absolutely. Um, there are so many like industry associations and just ways to communicate and plug in. And I think the pandemic did us all a favor in that sense. Um, like like I mentioned, I've always been interested in public service and before the pandemic, I didn't wanna live in DC. And so now it's an opportunity for more people are just better at it, right? Absolutely. Um, and so I think that's a leveraging point for 2022. Um, but yeah, just that focus, like like I said before, like owners and operators of critical infrastructure do not see themselves as cyber war, war fighters, right? Um, but at the end of the day, they do have to build a fortress around something that is, you know, needs to be sustainable for society. We depend on it. So yeah, that's the mission, I guess. Systematic.
1: is a good answer, but more importantly, systematically sustainable because they're all so interconnected. And that's, that's the other piece I think people forget about is you, you can't just focus on one of them. I mean, focusing on energy is important and focusing on water is important and nuclear, but at the end of the day, they are all so interrelated in how we live our everyday lives that it's it has to be, it, I, I, I don't want to say blanket, <laughs> because they're not the same. And it, it can't be, you know, very specific that everybody just does this, but you have to look at it from that systems view when you're deciding what those individual sector responsibilities are going to be. And I think yeah, we us get that too.
2: Is there an ISAC for the ISACs? Is there- <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been predicting that there'll be a Smart Cities ISAC someday. So um, the actual like footprint of Smart Cities is pretty tiny still. But again, innovation versus practitioner, people want to see that future. There's like this you know, ongoing projects all over the place, including in Texas. Um, like we have a whole community somewhere in DFW that's um, 3D printed houses. Like innovation is happening, but the practitioner side is like hurting at the same time. Um, so I think that'll be interesting to watch um, as we go forward uh, I don't want to, I, I think there'll be an, an ISAC for smart cities is what I always talk about. And like, how do we integrate? Cause you have so many different like business departments and things like that, that, that work in that. Um, I don't want to live in a smart city, but <laughs> I'm like the anti Alexa household kind of person, but, um, it's, it's interesting to keep a bead on. Um, I wonder, is there, there's gotta be an overarching kind of group for the ISACs, right? The-
1: well, it, it's DHS, right. As a <laughs> So, I mean, yes, kind of there is, but at the same time, uh, like I said, when you're you're a sector-specific agency or you are sitting in a very sector-specific part of the government, that tends to be your only point of view until you get down to that owner-operator level. And they're like, well, we can't do anything if, you know, Virginia Power loses this, then we lose this, and then that chemical plant loses their ability to do it. Like, they know at that level, they know what the interdependencies are. But yes. uh, often yeah. when we talk about this from a security perspective, we're missing all of that, that part of it. Yeah. Until so it,
2: there's also this, oh, sorry.
1: No, no, no. I just said until something happens until cyber Nine Eleven. 11.
2: Or you see people that are like on the OT side, they don't understand that like the rip and replace is not an option. And so they're like, oh, just replace it, uh, use virtualization, <laughs> And there needs to be, and this is something Congress knows, like like more subsidization of the Mm -hmm. industries that can't afford to do things better. Um, But that rip and replace, it's really funny. I forget what call I was on, but I told them, they were like, well, I've seen software that's like three or five years old. And I was like, that comment made me want to pee my pants. That's what I said out loud. Like, I know that's not professional, but that's the, I was like, what is that old to you? Cause, and there's that huge disconnect on just like understanding the differences right and okay. and how those
1: play out and when you're talking about ot technology that's been you know operational for 20 years or 25 years yeah and literally is going to cost more money than that owner operator could ever make to to change yep. out and completely redo and then wonder why they're not doing anything well yeah and then
2: expect? within these industries there's also tons of like purpose-built software that is incongruent and interoperable, like people made fun of, I think it was after NotPetya, that there were like these hospital systems in Europe that weren't updated. And somebody was like, you don't understand, like our operational technology would not work. How did we done that update? It wasn't because we're stupid. It's because it's not interoperable. And there's all this purpose-built software across these industries. But then there's also like major companies within each industry will either acquire a software and like let them run their shop within that bigger government or in that bigger company, but there's also like they'll toy with it for a couple of years and then recreate it internally because they have their own teams that can build that software out. And that creates all these other different touch points for like problematic, you know, updates or different versions or all this, all right. these interoperable problems.
1: Yeah. And if you look at the the incident of the hospitals, you know, the naysayers or are- well, you know, you wouldn't have this problem of everything shutting down, or you wouldn't have this problem of patients not being able to get care. But yeah, actually, we would have. <laughs> actually, if I right. had that update, we would have had exactly the same problem. And yes. we've had much longer to have to deal with how to fix it. Yeah.
2: And that's why I love simulations, because you can walk through those problems without letting the technical people technical all the time. But you need, you need all the voices, you need the communications people, the lawyers, the compliance. I mean, everyone has to not agree, but come to a consensus of like, uh, I don't need to fall on my sword all the time. And, and somebody else's priority given a certain catastrophe is actually more important than mine. And we need to align that before it's too late. Like those are the conversations that people need to be having all the time. It's not, are our windows systems updated? It's, do our lawyers know who to call? Do, do we know our communications plans? Like all of those little things that seem like next year priorities, like their last year priorities actually, so
1: yeah absolutely so um you're totally going to come back on the show again by the way um because we, we talked have, about everything we have, we have so much more to talk about like i, I was like holding back um oh. this is fascinating and i actually just want to talk to you more offline and pick your brain about stuff and this has been really great i'm so grateful that you came on
2: and i have so many people to recommend in my orbit that you may or may not know already and yeah the conversation yeah i've got a couple in mind on the writing down.
1: And to the other project that I'm working on for the Other Society, um, I've talked to you a little bit about. um, I've been hinting about it on the show. It's a very, very interesting um, targeted look at critical infrastructure from ITSP magazine um, through a a program called The Other Society, where we take experts from all over uh, the industry or the topic that we're looking at. And we sit down and talk about, you know, where we're at right now, what we did to get here. um, And we talk about it on both a policy level and then at a very technical level, and then from a societal level. So if we don't manage to get the policy piece and the technical piece right, how is that affecting society? And why is society such a driver to make these things happen or not happen? So it's gonna be really interesting. Uh, Danielle's gonna participate, super excited. And um, yeah, it's gonna be great, I love it. I can't wait. Thank you, everybody. This has been the latest episode of The National Blast, and I'll see you next time.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of The National Blast podcast with Kenan Skelly. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.